Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be Helaman chapter 12. So uh, we've had famine in the land. We've had Nephites and Lamanites fighting each other. And now the Gideon robbers are infesting the land again. All right. Um, let me just read you a couple things here before we get into the chapter. Uh, in 1787, Edward Gibbon completed his noble work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Here is the way he accounted for the fall. One, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society. Two, higher and higher taxes and the spending of public monies for free bread and circuses for the populace. Three, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more and more exciting and brutal. Four, the building of gigantic armaments with the real enemy was within the decadence of the people. Five, the decay of religion, faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life and becoming impotent to warn and guide the people. And that was quoted by President Ezra Tapp Benson. All right, so here talking about the destruction of a civilization. Are we going through similar things right now? I think we need to be careful, don't we? Verse 1, and thus we can behold how false and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. Yea, we can see that the Lord in his great infinite goodness doth bless and prosper those who put their trust in him. President Eyring has said, you and I need to be patient and for a reason. A quick reading of the Book of Mormon, a few prayers, a shallow attempt at repentance, a casual regard for the covenants we've made. Of course, that is not enough. The scriptures use over and over again the word steadiness to describe faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. When faith and repentance and diligent efforts to live the commandments have gone on long enough that virtue garnishes our thoughts unceasingly, then the doctrine of the priesthood, the truthful answers to the questions that really matter, will distill upon us as the dews from heaven. Notice in General Conference uh, last time that they talked about uh, changing the wording of the temple and recommend uh, questions. That's been my experience with seeking the confirmation of truth by the Spirit of God. I have at times sought it by singular effort in times of great need, and it has come. Investigators have that experience when they reach the point where they must know if the Book of Mormon is true. But far more often for me, I notice the Spirit's presence in quiet confirmations at times when all I seem to to have done is plod on in diligence, doing the same things, searching the scriptures with a prayer in my heart, and with more concern for others, and therefore less time for pursuits that let Satan, the father of lies, entice me. It's in periods of that steadiness that I notice the Holy Ghost almost in the ways you're surprised to discover that your shoes are wet from the dew formed on the grass overnight, and I look up and realize that my mind has been enlightened and my heart has been enlarged. Verse 2, yea, and we may see that at the very time when he doth prosper his people, yea, in the increase of their fields, their flocks, and their herds, and in gold, and in silver, and all manner of precious things of, of every kind, and art, sparing their lives, and delivering them out of the hands of their enemies, softening the hearts of their enemies, that they should not declare wars against them, yea, and in fine, doing all things for the welfare and happiness of his people, yea, then is the time that they do harden their hearts, and do forget the Lord their God, and do trample under their feet the Holy One, yea, and this because of their ease and their exceedingly great prosperity. And thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, yea, except he doth visit them with death and with terror and with famine and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. 
The Lord has made no secret of the fact that he intends to try the faith and the patience of his saints. We mortals are so quick to forget the Lord, and thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people, um, they will not remember him. However, the Lord knows our bearing capacity both as to coping and to comprehending, and he will not give us more to bear than we can manage at the moment, though to us it may seem otherwise. Just as no temptations will come to us from which we cannot escape or which we cannot bear, we will not be given more trials than we can sustain. Brigham Young said of geographical destination, this is the place. Of God's plan of salvation with its developmental destination, it can be said, this is the process. President Young, who knew something about trial and tribulation, but also of man's high destiny, said that the Lord lets us pass through these experiences that we might become true friends of God by developing our individual capacities, wisely exercising our agency and trusting God, including when we feel forsaken and alone. Then we can, said President Young, learn to be righteous in the dark. The gospel glow we see radiating, radiating from some amid dark difficulties comes from illuminated individuals who are of good cheer. To be cheerful when others are in despair, to keep the faith when others falter, to be true even when we feel forsaken, all of these are deeply desired outcomes during the deliberate divine tutorials which God gives to us because he loves us. These learning experiences must not be misread as divine indifference. Instead, such tutorials are a part of the divine unfolding. He, uh, Elder Maxwell goes on to say, we need to remember, however, that people whose hearts are hardened will have to experience something sufficiently strong to break their hearts and bring them to their senses. If it is true, as it is, that the Lord chasteneth those whom he loves, we would not really want immunity from the chastening of either circumstance or other things. Because God loves us, he will do what is necessary in order to teach us what we need to know. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you whom I love, and whom I love I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. And for, this, and for the chastisement, I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things, out of temptation, and I have loved you. In further modern revelation, the Lord says, Therefore they must needs be chastened and tried, even as Abraham, who was commanded to offer up his only son, for all those who will not endure chastening but deny me cannot be sanctified. Harold Lee said, And thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, they will not remember him. Isn't that a terrible indictment? And yet that is happening before us today. We are seeing that affluence. Never was there such prosperity in this country. We have been forgetting God, and we have turned aside from his teachings, and we are paying a terrible price. It is the test that, if we survive, we'll perhaps take some of the punishments that this prophet said would be necessary to bring us back to our knees and seek for the Lord to guide and direct us. Elder Maxwell again said, Afflictions can soften us and sweeten us and can be a chastening influence. We often think of chastening as something being done to punish us, such as by a mortal tutor who is angry and peevish with us. Divine chastening, however, is a form of learning, as it is administered at the hands of a loving father. Verse 4, Oh, how foolish and how vain and how evil and devilish and how quick to do iniquity and how slow to do good are the children of men. Yea, how quick to hearken unto the words of the evil one and to set their hearts upon the vain things of the world. Mormon is looking from his perspective of seeing the Nephites destroyed, knowing that he will be faced with the same circumstances, that we will be faced with the same circumstances in our day. Verse 5, Yea, how quick to be lifted up in pride, yea, how quick to boast, and do all manner of that which is iniquity, and how slow are they to remember the Lord their God, and to give ear unto his counsels, yea, how slow to walk in wisdom's paths. Behold, they do not desire that the Lord their God, who hath created them, should rule and reign over them, notwithstanding his great goodness and his mercy towards them. They do set at naught his counsels, and they will not that he should be their guide. 
Oh, how great is the nothingness without Christ of the children of men, even they are less than the dust of the earth. Joseph Fielding Smith said, Now Mormon did not mean to say that the Lord has greater concern for and loves the dust of the earth more than he does his children. He did not mean to say that we, the children of the Lord, in his sight are considered less than the dust of the earth. The point he is making is that the dust of the earth is obedient. <clears throat> it moveth hither and thither at the command of the Lord. All things are in harmony with his laws. Everything in the universe obeys the law given unto it, so far as I know, except man. Everywhere you look, you find law and order, the elements obeying the law given to them, true to their calling. But man rebels, and in this thing, man is less than the dust of the earth because he rejects the counsels of the Lord, and the greater the blessings he receives, this because of his agency. The more willingly does he turn from the source of those blessings, feeling self-sufficient, and puts his faith and his trust in the arm of flesh rather than in God. Brigham Young said, The animal vegetable mineral kingdoms abide the law of their creator. The whole earth and all things pertaining to it, except man, abide the law of their creation. Uh, verse 8, For behold, the dust of the earth moveth hither and thither to the dividing asunder at the command of our great and everlasting God. Yea, behold, at his voice do the hills and the mountains tremble and quake, and by the power of his voice they are broken up and become smooth, yea, even like unto a valley. Yea, by the power of his voice doth the whole earth shake. Yea, by the power of his voice do the fountains, do the foundations rock, even to the very center. Yea, and if he shall, and if he say unto the earth, Move, it is moved. One of the great prophecies that attends the transition of this earth from its present telestial state to the Edenic or paradisiacal state of the millennium is that the mountains being made low and the valleys being brought up. Also that the earth will be moved back uh, into the place where it was created near unto Kolob uh, at the millennium or before. Verse 14, Yea, if, if, he shall say, if he say unto the earth, Thou shalt go back, that it lengthen out the day for many hours, it is done. References here made to the biblical account that shows Joshua commanding the sun and the moon to stand still so that his army might complete their rout of the Amorites. Here is a corrective note and is added to that account which supposed the sun to rotate around a stationary earth. These verses provide a subtle but certain assurance that the prophet editor Mormon, like many of the ancient spiritual leaders, was anything but primitive in his understanding concerning God, man, and the universe. Verse 15, and thus according to his word, now that was by Millet McConkie, by the way, Verse 15, And thus, according to his word, the earth goeth back, and it appeareth unto man that the sun standeth still. Yea, and behold, this is so, for surely it is the earth that moveth, and not the sun. Joseph Fielding Smith said, There is a prevalent notion in the world today that before the time of Columbus, Galileo, and Copernicus, all ancient people believed that the earth was flat in the center of the universe. From the writings of the scriptures, and more especially those which have come to us in this dispensation, we know that the ancient peoples, when they were guided by the Spirit of the Lord, had true conception of the universe. The Lord revealed to Abraham great truths about the heavenly bodies, their revolutions, times, and seasons, and these were published by the prophet Joseph Smith before modern astronomers were familiar with these facts. From the writings of Abraham, we learn that the Egyptians understood the nature of the planets. Moses also recorded much about this in other worlds, but because of the unbelief and apostasy from truth, these writings were eliminated from his writings. We learn from the Book of Mormon that the Nephites understood the nature of the planets, it was not until apostasy and rebellion against the things of God that the true, true knowledge of that universe, as well as the knowledge of other truths, became lost among men. Uh, that was by Joseph Smith. Verse 16, And behold, also, if he say unto the, unto the waters of the great deep, Be thou dried up, it is done. Behold, if he say unto this mountain, Be thou raised up and come over and fall upon that city, that it be buried up, behold, it is done. Um, this is going to happen at the destruction of the Nephites later on. 
Verse 18, And behold, if a man hide up a treasure in the earth, and the Lord shall say, Let it be accursed, because of the iniquity of him who hath hid it up, behold, it shall be accursed. And this also happens a little bit later on too, doesn't it? Verse 19, And if the Lord shall say, Be thou accursed, that no man shall find thee from this time henceforth and forever, behold, no man getteth it henceforth and forever. <clears throat> Brigham Young said, We see many of the elders of Israel desirous of becoming wealthy, and they adopt any course that they think will bring them riches, which is to me which to me is, an, is as unwise as anything can be, to see men of wisdom, men that seem to have an understanding of the world and of the things of God searching after minerals throughout these mountains. They traverse the hills, they dig here and there, and keep digging and picking and rolling the rocks from morning until night. This chain of mountains has been followed from the north to the south, and its various spurs have been prospected, and what do they find? Just enough to allure them, and to finally lead them from the faith, and, to, and at last to make them miserable and poor. Ask the brethren why they do this, and the ready reply will be, Is it not my privilege to find a gold mine or a silver mine, as well as others? As far as I am concerned, I would say, Yes, certainly it is your privilege if you can find one. But do you know how to find such a mine? No, you do not. These treasures that are in the earth are carefully watched. They can be removed from place to place according to the good pleasure of him who made them and owns them. He has his messengers at his service, and it is just as easy for an angel to remove the minerals from any part of one of these mountains to another, as it is for you and me to walk up and down the ha this hall. People do not know it, but I know there is a seal set upon the treasures of earth. Men are allowed to go so far and no further. I have known places where there were treasures in abundance, but, men, but could men get them? No, you can read in the Book of Mormon of the ancient Nephites holding their treasures and of their becoming slippery, so that after they had privately held their, their, hid their money on going to the place again, lo and behold, it was not there, but was somewhere else. But they knew not where. The people do not understand this. I wish they did, for they would, do, for they would then do as I do, pay attention to the legitimate business that God has given them to perform. Verse 30, And behold, if the Lord shall say unto a man, Because of thine iniquities, thou shalt be accursed forever, it shall be done. And if the Lord shall say, Because of thine iniquities, thou shalt be cut off from my presence, he will cause that it shall be so. And woe unto him to whom he shall say this, for it shall be unto him that will do iniquity, and he cannot be saved. Therefore, for this cause, that men might be saved, hath repentance been declared. Therefore, blessed are they who will repent and hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God, for these are they that shall be saved. And may God grant in this in his great fullness that men might be brought unto repentance and good works, that they might be restored unto grace for grace according to their works. Seek for the real things, not the artificial. Seek for the everlasting truths, not the passing whim. Seek for the eternal things of God, not for that which is here today and gone tomorrow. Look to God and live. And that was by Gordon B. Hinckley. Verse 25, And I would that all men... This sounds like a farewell, doesn't it? That uh, Nephi is ending his... Uh, talk here it sounds like so we're starting to wrap it up it sounds like and i would that all men might be saved but we read that in the great and last day there are some who shall be cast out yea who shall be cast off from the presence of the lord this is a broad classification ranging from those who inherit the terrestrial and celestial kingdoms to the sons of perdition those who inherit a kingdom of no glory and remain filthy forevermore all these are cut off from the presence of the father and and as revelation states concerning the candidates for the celestial glory they shall be servants of the most high but where god and christ dwell they cannot come worlds without end verse 26 yea who shall be consigned to a state of endless misery fulfilling the words which say they they that have done good shall have everlasting life, and they that have done evil shall have everlasting damnation. And thus it is, amen. The phrase everlasting life 
describes more than a life that does not end. It is a description. It is descriptive of the kind and quality of life enjoyed by the obedient and faithful, the life of exalted and glorified beings. Conversely, everlasting damnation is not properly understood to mean an endless stint in hell, but rather is descriptive of the kind of punishment, God's punishment, which will be meted out to the defiant. In other words, those that are uh, that that receive damnation. That just means that they have stopped in their eternal progression. They can't go any further. Uh, but only through the atonement can we be saved. I bear testimony that these things are true and that as we study these uh, words of Nephi and, and the Book of Mormon that we will draw closer to our Heavenly Father. I know that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God and that he translated this by the gift and power of God. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I look forward to uh, seeing you tomorrow. Bye.